welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, great. I've just had a lot on my mind these past few weeks. There's just a whole bunch of... I don't even know if we have time to talk about this stuff. Um, there's the stuff at BYU. Did you hear about this? I actually did not hear what happened at BYU, other than the uh, follow-up meeting that uh, the Black Student Union had with Brother Brad Wilcox. I did hear about that, and uh, you know that sounds encouraging, but what else oh, happened? I didn't hear about that. Oh, Okay. Well, basically, they just had a, uh, I don't know if you heard that uh, the Black Student Union, uh, first of all, they showed up outside of Brother Brad Wilcox's classroom, and they mm-hmm. just wanted to talk to him. You know, it was a very, like, peaceful thing. They showed up wearing all black in solidarity, mm-hmm. um, and they waited outside of his classroom so they could talk to him when he was finished. Um, he said he didn't have time to talk. And uh, there was even security outside of his door, apparently. I don't know what they were scared of. I mean, I know what they were scared of, but, you know, that whole thing was ridiculous. Um, But anyway, they did get a meeting scheduled with Brother Brad Wilcox, uh, the presidency of the Black Student Union. So they finally met with him. They were able to get some of their uh, grievances out. They were able to talk a little bit. Of course, Brother Wilcox uh, apologized profusely again. But anyway, there's a whole update on the uh, Black Student Union's uh, Facebook pages and Instagram pages. I definitely encourage folks to uh, check that out and get a full update. I think the video is about four minutes long, and it uh, has the current BSU president uh, you know, giving the report. His name is Nathaniel Byrd. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, so what did you hear happened at BYU? So this yesterday, and by yesterday I mean March 4th, was the one-year anniversary of the Rainbow Day at BYU, which is where they lit up the Y with rainbow colors, which I thought was a profound, brilliant, nonviolent way of shining light onto the issue, like literally. It is unmistakable that people within the church, that queer people within the church, want justice and equality and liberation. Like, mm-hmm. there's no way of portraying us as compliant, whatever, whatever. I don't know. There's there's a narrative about us, right? That, mm-hmm. oh, there, you, you can, you know, parade out all of these queer people that'll say everything is just fine. And you know what? There's not really a lot of queer people saying everything is just fine. Even mm-hmm. the people that are committed to celibacy or committed to a mixed orientation relationship, they're not saying it's all fine. They're saying... Mm-hmm. I'm doing it. It might be worth it, but they're not saying it's fine, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think controlling the narrative is exactly what they want to do, and they're afraid of losing control of the narrative because that made national news last year mm-hmm. when that happened. Mm-hmm. Like people can see, oh, look, something's afoot. So this year they decided to post a little sign that says no trespassing and no demonstrating and no whatever whatever thing and they fenced off the Y so that people can't go and let their light shine Mm -hmm. and in a way that hurts their cause even more because then you look Mm -hmm. petty you look like you are scrambling for control you look scared you look scared you look reactionary you look um, mean spirited it does not look good like that is not the way of Christ mm-hmm. to uh, to react that way. Yeah, and so it makes them look bad. It makes homophobia look. It just it just did not look good. 
Mm-hmm. These reactions just do not make BYU look good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, ironically, their reaction arouses more sympathy for our side than otherwise would have been there. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if they come off looking cool, then then people like wonder what's going on. But it's very clear. That, I think, is the principle of nonviolence, is when people look at the situation and don't know what's going on, it, if you remain nonviolent... It's clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, even though it's complex, right? There's no real good guys and bad guys in the in a in a detailed sense. But when you look at the expressions of power and how that's aligned, it's very clear who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Mm-hmm. When, um, yeah, so there, that's that's been on my mind. Um, mm. Another thing that's been on my mind is I read this interesting book this week called "The Devil's Historians." It's uh, the subtitle is how modern extremists abuse the medieval past, and with my studies of old English and Latin, I'm I'm almost being seduced into becoming a medievalist. Like <laughs> switching from a New Testament scholar to being a medievalist would be a very interesting move. Interesting. I don't know if that that will that transformation will be complete, but I uh, I think it's cool to, to to talk about the Middle Ages. But there's this great romanticism of the ro- the middle ages by white supremacists by christian supremacists by uh people who support patriarchy you know those good old days of white christian men where europe was all white christian men and they put the, the it, it's just a mess you know like there's so many even the kkk has medieval type uh, uh things calling themselves the, uh, knights the Charlotte, the Charlottesville people, all of these white supremacist group, they want to go back to the Middle Ages where you protect the princess and you fight dragons and you uh, whatever it is. And the argument that these historians are making is that it's based on a superficial misreading of the medieval period, whereas the medieval period was much more multicultural, much less white, much less straight, much less male centric than we afterwards imagine it to be. And so a lot of these modern people in their medieval fantasy is they're just inventing a medieval, a Middle Ages that never really existed. Kind of like racists in the South invent an antebellum South that didn't actually exist. It's just what they wanted it to be, uh, that they're trying to go back to, or... uh, there's just a lot of a lot of ways that the way you describe the Middle Ages or the way you describe a certain golden age changes how you behave mm-hmm. and changes your priorities and what you look for. And, and we'll see this here in the church. Like a lot of people are going to want to go back to this golden era of the church, mm-hmm. which there never really was one, right? Right. Um, at least th- there, okay, maybe there was, but it's not the way they were thinking it was. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, I wanted to talk first before we get into the text a little bit about the concept of selectivity and emphasis in designing the curriculum, because even just choosing which chapters of the Bible to incorporate into the curriculum and which ones to leave out is an act of power. It's not a neutral Mm -hmm. act. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of interpretation when you go into what, uh, what um what chapters are are being used and i should start with a uh 
sort of a content warning. We will be talking about rape, the rape of Dinah. Uh, probably not in any detail, but we just want to name that that will come up in case re- listeners need to take care of themselves in any way. Mm-hmm. And for example, this is this is one of the thing. The rape of Dinah text is not included in our Come Follow Me, mm-hmm. but the account of Potiphar seducing or attempting to rape joseph is included and like Mm -hmm. well what are you doing this and and they're framing it they could have had a good conversation about consent they Mm -hmm. could have a good conversation about patriarchy and power structures and under what situations people are actually free to consent Mm -hmm. but they didn't do that they said they made it about fleeing temptation which is not Mm -hmm. really what it's about Mm -hmm. um and one thing I noticed that they left out is the Song of Songs, one of my favorite texts in the Hebrew Bible, in part because it centers the voice of the woman. Uh, the Song of Songs talks about what it allows her to speak in her voice mm-hmm. about what she finds pleasurable, what, fi- what she finds desirable. The woman character shows initiative and agency. She shows a particular drive. She talks about her desires and how she desires this particular man over all other men. She she exhibits choice. She uh, ha- exhibits enthusiastic consent. I mean, I, now I think it's a little anachronistic to, to, to make it a full-blown feminist text, mm-hmm. but I'm saying we don't get a lot of what the women want or what the women are thinking or what the women are choosing right mm-hmm. we see fathers marrying off their daughters to other men and we don't even know if that's what the what the uh what the women wanted and in cases in the cases mm-hmm. of giving their handmaiden or or their enslaved women to to uh, to the husband i mean like that that's that's also problematic they almost certainly did not have much of a choice there. So mm-hmm. what do we do with all these these things and we don't have a robust conversation about consent? And so what my point is, they made a lot of selectivity and I was looking at this over one about one fourth of the year is spent in Genesis. Hmm. Did you notice that? I didn't actually notice that, but come to think of it, we are in the month of March now and yeah. uh, we're still in Genesis. Genesis goes up until the third week of March. Now, I'm, hmm. I'm some of it overlaps with uh, Abraham and uh, and Moses, but mm-hmm. basically, we've been doing Genesis for nearly a quarter of the year, which I think shows a very interesting uh, bias. They're hmm. wanting to hit on issues of creation and male and female and marriage and covenant path and look at the covenants that the patriarchs made. And isn't this just like the temple? And there's just a lot. Of course, there's a lot of great stuff to talk about in Genesis. But what what I would have done is I would have emphasized uh, the legal materials in the Torah, in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, which mm-hmm. some people find boring. But there's a lot of great justice material in there about how to construct society. There's economic justice all throughout those texts. I would have emphasized the prophets, both both the major prophets and the minor prophets. They are social justice warriors. Like, I, I can't believe that people want to focus so much on Genesis when there's so much richness in the prophets. And I would also focus on Psalms. I think this book of Psalms, we only get three weeks on the book of Psalms where you could take the whole year on the book of Psalms. 
that is rich with making it uh, personal, likening it unto yourself, a, a, an individual and a corporate relationship with God. There's just so much that they could have done. And uh, and I, I like I'm not we've had rich discussions each week here about Genesis, but I'm, there's more to do than Genesis, especially when you look at what they're trying to do with the text. They'll say, oh, mm-hmm. look how how these how these ancient men got their wives. You need to get a wife, too. Is that really what this is about? You notice that or, in, uh, when we talked about Isaac and Rebecca, they really just shoehorned this whole marriage thing right. into that. Marriage is ordained of God between a man and a woman. That's what you got. Right? From the and, story of Isaac and Rebecca. Come on now. And same thing here with this text where I don't really look at the manual, but I looked at the manual and it's like, oh, look how J- Joseph f- uh, decided to flee temptation. I mean, no, this is, first of all, there's a power dynamic where enslaved individuals are not free to consent or or not. And um, in, uh, enslavers had typically sexual access to the people that they enslaved. And um, instead of having that conversation and having a conversation about today, like modern workplace sexual harassment where people with power over them, you know, we could have mm-hmm. had that conversation we could have had a conversation about consent and power dynamics, but instead we're having a conversation designed to get people to uh, conform to the law of chastity and right. to right. the you know to avoid temptation and flee temptation. And I'm like, you could look at these texts in a way that transforms, but here people are looking at these texts in a way. Uh, for conformity ran, rather than transformation. You're, they're wanting people to conform to a particular narrative of the plan of salvation. They're wanting people to conform to a certain view of tithing or a certain view mm-hmm. of the temple or a certain view of the law of chastity or a certain view of whatever. And they're coming at the text with a very, very clear agenda. Now, people could say, well, I'm coming at the text with a clear agenda too, and I am. I'm, I am definitely biased in favor of the marginalized i'm biased in favor of love i'm in biased in favor of god i'm biased in favor of christ like i've been formed by the tradition in a way that i'm going to bring all of that to the text and i obviously think my biases are more native and more authentic to the communities that produce the text than some artificial proof texting of it anyway i'm just rambling on because i didn't really prepare very well so i just have a lot to say so that's kind of what i wanted to say about the selection process that went into the hebrew bible this year whereas i think we're with dnc and the book of mormon we i think covered every chapter of of the entire thing and i get that with the hebrew bible it is it's long it's it's long we will not be able to cover every chapter to the same extent that we did the other years so you have to select, but I'm just wondering why did they select? Why do we skip these? Why do these we skip things? these chapters? Especially the Song of Songs, and and especially reducing the Psalms, reducing the prophets. I mean, we do cover the prophets, uh, but not as to the to the same proportion that we did Genesis. Nah, and Genesis and Exodus; those stories are what most Christians are familiar with when it comes to the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. like. It's pretty much the creation story, the Joseph story, and the uh, Exodus story. That's what most people know when it comes to uh, when it comes to the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So it it makes sense that we spend a lot of time there. Now that I think about it, and also the fact that uh, 
you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doesn't really seem to, I don't, I don't know if this is official anywhere, but we don't seem to view the Song of Songs as, uh, as an inspired text. So, like, I can't recall ever going over that text um, when, when it comes to my, my, my study or my education within the walls of the church or at, you know, any church institution I've ever been a part of. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, just, just things that make you go, hmm. Yeah, I think we should probably do a special episode on the Song of Songs because there's oh enough gosh. to talk about um, outside of the, the Come Follow Me curriculum. And I don't want to talk about it now because otherwise we're going to waste all our time. <laughs> but but it's ironic that for a tradition that believes in living prophets to not spend as much time on the prophets, um, except for a few very superstitionistic y things where they're going to like find Jesus in Isaiah, which there's room for that. I, I mean, I find Jesus in Isaiah too. Mm-hmm. That's not what it would have meant to the original community that produced it. Um, or, or finding prophecies of the re- restoration, right? I mean, there's a place for that too. But if all you're doing is aggressively mining these texts for gotchas, like, yay, Jesus and yay, Joseph Smith, yay, love, you're, missing, you're missing what, the transformative power that the living prophets did in their own community, talking about economic justice, talking about communal sin, talking about reparations, talking about all this stuff that people, a lot of Latter-day Saints culturally think that these concepts aren't an authentic part of our tradition, and they are, they just don't know the prophets very well, or they've read them through a a distorted uh, reading. A patriarchal and imperialistic and a homophobic lens. Right, right. So um, there's also room for exile and room for struggling against oppression. Like so many of the Hebrew prophets were wrestling in an empire that was dominating them, right? Mm-hmm. That that speaks to liberation theology. And well, anyway, I better stop rambling on about the Bible because I've wasted half I mean, we're half talking time. about the Bible. It's, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the Bible. It's fine. But uh, let's go yeah. ahead <laughs> And uh, dive directly right, into this yeah. text now that we've had these, uh, you know, necessary, I feel, prefatory words when it comes to uh, the text. And I think the first thing I actually wanted to talk about was something you already discussed, which is the omission of uh, chapters 34 through 36, um, you know, namely the mm-hmm. story of Dinah and also the genealogies that are present. Uh, you know, that's basically what's in chapter 36 is a right. bunch of genealogies. Right, Esau is part of God's family, too. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of his story, uh, particularly the, uh, the the reconciliation bet- between him and uh, Jacob. And, you know, the little question mark at the end of it, not really something that we take time to discuss. And again, um, especially during this Women's History Month, we, we do want to make sure that it's clear right. that there is going to be a content warning here. Uh, there is going to be a discussion of rape, sexual violence. Uh, so, you know, do what you got to do to take care of yourselves. We'll put in the show notes where the conversation ends if you'd rather just, uh, you know, skip this part of the conversation. But uh, that is where I would like to start today, section, or sorry, chapter 34 of uh, Genesis. And again, this is the story of, uh, of Dinah. So we see a, what to me seems to be a very condensed case study in the failures of patriarchy. In this story, mm-hmm. Dinah, who is uh, Jacob and Leah's uh, daughter, only daughter, she is uh, raped by uh, Shechem, the Bible's first neckbeard, and then her brothers Simeon and Levi, 
avenge her by uh, cunning and murder. So at the beginning of this chapter, Dinah is, you know, minding her own business, going out to see the women of the region, actually, likely to, you know, see how they live, maybe make friends. I don't know. Um, But this is when she this is the part where she's seized upon and uh, raped. And after after this rape, her assailant decides that uh, that he loves Dinah and wants to uh, marry her. And he speaks very tenderly to her is what it says in the text. And Jacob is surprisingly mute about this uh, about this whole situation, which seems to mirror a lot of women's experience with with male authority and with patriarchy when it comes to abuse and sexual violence, even within our church. The fact that the Come Follow Me manual just straight up skips this chapter, that doesn't help things. And uh, yeah, Jacob's sons, however, they are rightly angered about this whole situation and they decide to take matters into their own hands. They, you know, Mm -hmm. they use the sacred rite of circumcision to trick the men of the city into a state of weakness and then proceed to kill all of them and uh, plunder them. This is the part where Jacob finally speaks up, condemning the actions of Simeon and Levi as short-sighted because, you know, he feared retribution from the other Canaanites in that area. So look at what all these what all these men did. All these men acted in ways that showed little faith in God and at times straight up disrespect toward God. Uh, Shechem violated God's laws and violated Dinah. Jacob was silent in the face of Dinah's violation, and he didn't trust that God would take care of his family in this mm-hmm. land like God had promised. And uh, his sons, Simeon and Levi, they, they used circumcision to kill far more people than were guilty, unless you want to count the sin of complicity, assuming that all these men knew what Shechem did to Dinah. But in other words, they used a symbol of a covenant with God to commit violence against other people. And some of them may have been innocent, which is, you know, an irony that's not unfamiliar to Christians, using a covenant to commit violence against others. Does wow, that does yeah. that does that sound familiar to you, Derek? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and also it's tricking people into a covenant that's not right for them or un, not under not the right pre, uh um it's not the right pretext, right, is what right, I'm saying. Right. right? If, um, and, and, and so here's the other thing is they don't – the men decide that the solution to this would be the genocide of the Shechemites, but that's mm-hmm. not what Dinah asked for. Like we don't know mm-hmm. if that's what she asked for. We was, don't know what yeah. her solution was. Yes. Like we don't know what she wanted, and I right. think the men uh, are assuming – what to do and mm-hmm. and um that's why i wish we had the narratives of women elevated more in the text and we had mm-hmm. more women uh commenting on the text and preaching and teaching the text um i wish we had uh, women general authorities women prophets and women apostles um, I wish we had uh, women of all all experiences, all genders, all orientations. 
designing these lessons. And and uh, I mean, I'm not coming at this as an expert on feminism. I'm coming here saying like, I wish we had, and there are a lot of women. There are a lot of feminist yeah. and womanist scholars who've written on these texts mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and analyzing the texts of terror and, and how do we how do we process them? How do we deal with them? Both in Christianity and in Judaism. We should not for, forget our Jewish siblings who've also commented on the text and they often see things that we may not see. Mm-hmm. And like that was going to be the next thing I wanted to uh, bring up. Like if we, we could still talk about this whole notion of, you know, using covenants as a way to commit violence against others. We, we've we've spoken about this in the past, but I also that was gonna, the next thing I wanted to bring up was precisely what you brought up. What about Dinah's voice? Like who said she wanted all of this? You know, what what Simeon and Levi did and where was the voice of uh, the women in this whole thing? Because the men in like their supposed positions of authority, they literally did everything wrong. Like, and every one of them also demonstrated improper relationship with Dinah or an improper way to honor the relationship with Dinah. Shechem, obviously, in his violation of Dinah's autonomy. Jacob, as well, in his silence in the face of that violation. And though Simeon and Levi were right to be angry at the violation of their sister, they moved past uh, the notion of justice, and they moved to a brutal vengeance, taking lives of some presumably innocent people in the process. Like nobody did right by Dinah or by God in this whole situation. And I think that's the uh, right. main headline of uh, Genesis chapter 34, is you look what uh, people do in a patriarchal society when there are disagreements or when like they just have no respect for women. Like this rape wouldn't have occurred if, if you know, respect for women was considered. And, uh, you know, this extent to which Simeon and Levi took their vengeance, that wouldn't have occurred. And Jacob wouldn't have been silent in the face of his daughter's violation. Like, what are we, like, what are we doing out here? And why can't we have that conversation at church? Like, this is just, it feels way too important to skip past mm-hmm. um, considering everything that happened in this chapter and how central uh, Dinah was to everything that happened, even though the primary voices in this text are the men. But I think that's kind of the point. A woman was violated, mm-hmm. and in so being violated, God was also violated, and then none of the men did anything right in response to this singular act. None of them. Like, uh, you could have seen the good intentions uh, in some places, and I don't want to lift those up too much. Obviously, Simeon and Levi, mm-hmm. right to be angry. And Jacob, right to be angry at Simeon and Levi for compromising the safety of their entire family with their actions. But there, mm-hmm. there's just, again, this is just a great case study in what happens when you just let men have their way with women or just let men be the primary voices in charge. Like this is the kind of thing that can happen. This is a clear danger to me of a patriarchal mm-hmm. society is, um, you know, abuse of power, uh, silence in the face of injustice. And, you know, we're going to see that again by the time we get to uh, Judah and Tamar's story. But I just wanted to make sure we at least had or at least began that conversation and talk about the potential questions that this narrative could raise before we just skipped uh, these three chapters. Right. And I mean, it, it, like, I don't want to talk too much about this, but it's also important to interrogate what Dinah's brothers were angry about because if they were angry about Dinah's well-being they would have centered her her voice and her initiative and her solution and her uh, thoughts about reparations or whatever but I don't think they're actually 
concerned about her. They are concerned more about the loss of economic value that happens in this culture when a woman in your family is no longer a virgin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, virginity is a social construct, I think. I don't, I don't think uh, sex changes fundamentally someone's essence or someone's worth or someone's value, um, uh, especially, right? Um, now, obviously, rape will cause trauma, and that, that, that needs to be named, but consensual sex also gets uh, gets seen as somehow it's fundamentally changing who you are and you're no longer you know worth something anymore uh, and then of course this double standard gets played out differently for men versus women who engage in sex and so there's just a lot of a lot of questions here that I have that uh, this text occasions and that we don't really uh, have good conversations about in the church. Like I think about all the lessons on chastity and um, those old timey things. I, who was it that said, I think it was Spencer W. Kimball who said, it's better for you to lose your life than to you lose your chastity. Sounds like something he would have said. This sounds like something out of miracle of forgiveness. Right. Like that, that uh, that a woman needs to resist. Oh, I probably I don't even know if I don't feel comfortable talking about this. But my point is, we've got a lot of problematic stuff in our in in our cultural heritage as Latter Day Saints that mm-hmm. we haven't fully rooted out, like these lessons on chewed gum and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, chewed the, gum, the, licked cupcakes. Licked cupcakes. Yeah. You know, I I want to do this one time. Next time there's a ward potluck, now that COVID is kind of shifting to, to more potlucks, I want to, like, get cupcakes and then cut strawberries vertically so they look like tongues and put the tongue on top of the iced cupcakes. <laughs> and I'm going to label this at the potluck as licked cupcakes. <laughs> wow. And see if that... Uh, yeah. See if anybody wants them. <laughs> yeah, see if anyone wants them. Anyway. Um, well. So, yeah. I want to... Um, wow, time is going by quickly. I Let's, let's talk about um, sort of the, the, the Joseph, right? We haven't even gotten into the, the actual signed text yet. So let's talk <laughs> yeah. about Joseph, and then let's Sounds talk good. about Tamar, and then let's talk about... Joseph and Potiphar's wife and that whole thing. All right. So Joseph, this is kind of where the, uh, this story is kind of used as the bridge between Genesis and Exodus and, you know, obviously the whole time in Egypt thing. And also uh, highlights the transfer of the family dysfunction, you know, into the next generation of Jacob's family, of Israel's family. So I don't think that's going to just, you know, surprise anybody. Um, we, we've been talking pretty much since the whole narrative started, the whole Hebrew Bible started, that there's going to be family dysfunction throughout this entire text. And this is no exception. Like Jacob's got at least 12 sons by this point, at least one daughter. And, uh, you know, the dysfunction is strong. We already see that there is the continuation of Israel displaying favoritism towards Joseph more than his other sons, because, you know, Joseph was the son of his favorite wife, uh, Rachel. That's what it says in uh, 37.3. And Joseph was the mm-hmm. 11th of 12 boys, which made the favoritism sting his older brothers who like, you know, they felt passed up. You know, they felt 
away. And of course, that was capped by the uh, robe of many colors given to Joseph, which, you know, usually is a princely garment symbolizing some kind of privilege of the firstborn. Um, and that's kind of where things like really erupted. Mm-hmm. Like it says, the text says the brothers hated him and they could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him, though it appears that Joseph also isn't, you know, without uh, uh, blame in this whole situation. We also find out that Joseph was a bit of a tattletale in this story, um, mm-hmm. among other things. And uh, he has these dreams where, he, and he shares them with his brother, these very provocative dreams where he learns, uh, where Joseph is told that he will rule over his, uh, where he will rule over his brothers and they will bow down bow down bow down to him uh so you know in this particular chapter they conspire to kill joseph the dreamer uh but then they end up just at the uh, prodding of one of the brothers i don't know if it's judah or reuben um but you know they decide to just strip him of his clothes and throw him into a pit to rot while you know Mm -hmm. they go back and eat and eventually judah convinces his brothers to sell him uh, into Egypt for 20 pieces of silver. So that's how Joseph ends up in Egypt, where he is, uh, you know, sold to Potiphar. And then uh, the brothers conceal their crime mm-hmm. before their father by returning uh, Joseph's coat of many, club, uh, coat of many colors uh, covered in blood, basically saying, you recognize this. And uh, remember this part of the story by the time we get to Tamar, because we're going to see yet another theme of poetic justice being distributed to the, uh, you know, to the duplicitous individuals in all these narratives. But uh, that's basically a summary of uh, 37, I think. Was was there anything that uh, stood out to you particularly strongly in this uh, chapter, Brother Derek? Yeah, I just want to notice how this... Uh how the the narrative marks out Joseph as different, right? Because we queers are, we're different. There's something weird about him. There's something different about him. There's something supernatural, you know, unnatural or supernatural. Mm -hmm. And I just want to conflate the unnatural and supernatural with this whole dreaming thing, because Mm -hmm. this actually marks him out as different. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense in which everyone gets dreams and whatever, but for some reason you can see here with the, with the brothers and then later in Pharaoh's court, you can see that this marks him out as different. He's got this special transgressive ability that most people don't have. And I think we who are queer have a special ability that most people don't have. We have the ability to find beauty and love where most people can't find it. And then that's weird and it's scary and it's like, where, what's going on? So I just want to make this analogy between his um, God-given gift as a dreamer with the God-given uh gift that we queer and trans folks have in transgress transgressing people's assumptions just like joseph did mm-hmm. and so let me just quote from the, the queer bible commentary on this on this uh text it says here in jewish tradition too joseph is in the image of his beautiful mother fair of form and fair to look at but this is a transgressive suspect beauty, as Ostriker points out. Joseph is the darling, a pretty boy, his father's pet. The rabbis say he painted his eyes and walked with mincing step, showing off the coat of many colors which old Jacob made him, twirling, hugging himself. A young Hebrew Narcissus, no wonder his brothers hated him. Twirling, 
mincing in rainbow garb with painted eyes, Joseph is a flaming young queen. No wonder his brothers, particularly the sons of Leah, hate him. In the previous Parsha, they have even resorted to genocide to salve their wounded male honor. It is no wonder then that they will resent and hate this pretty fry, prettyfied affront to normative manhood. So I just want to name that here. As you can see, how he takes after his mother. He's the, the darling of his mother. He, he uh, uh, is, is pretty like his mother. Um, and so there, I just want to name this of how he transgresses some of these things. And, par, and that's what they're resenting him for. They're re resenting him for what, what the King James translates as the coat of many colors. And this is the ketonet pasim in Hebrew. And it's unclear what this actually means. Uh, when words in Hebrew appear once or twice or just a few times in the Hebrew Bible, it's hard to know what they mean because we don't have enough contexts uh, or clues to figure that figure that figure them out. And uh, uh, some of our uh, early versions, like the Septuagint and the Vulgate, that's where we get this many colors thing. It could have been special in other ways, specially embroidered, a special length, long um, ankle or uh, wrist length. I've seen different commentators. Most commentators today don't think we can be uh, conclude that it that it was many colors, but we just don't really know. One thing we do know is the other place in the Hebrew Bible that this uh, uh, ketonet pasim is mentioned is in the story of Tamar, not the Tamar that we're going to get to, but the Tamar, the, the daughter of, of King David. And she wears uh, the same special uh, tunic. And in that place, it is, uh, this is 2 Samuel 13, I think, in that place it's identified as something that virgin princesses wear. So here we have the uh, this pretty boy with his virgin princess robe uh, getting abused, getting mistreated, getting rejected, getting betrayed by his family for his differences. Hello, this is a queer story. So many queer mm. stories are about transition or they're about coming out. They're about identity. They're about formation. They're about clothing. Like you don't won't believe how important clothing is once queer people or once trans people start living into their authentic identities. Boo boy, we get we get treated bad. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it, you'll see that clothing is a very important identity marker throughout the Joseph narrative. It's the mm -hmm. starting out with the coat of many colors, then that gets taken away from him. It gets used uh, to deceive the father, it gets um, he it, then his uh, his robe gets taken off of him by by Potiphar's wife, and then he gets new clothing on to to see the pharaoh. There's just a lot of commentators have noticed this pattern of clothing here, and uh, I just want to name that um, and just say, yeah, this is important. This really parallels the journey of queer people. Uh, I just want to go and um, so Nathan Kitchen, who is the current president of Affirmation, which is the organization for uh, LGBTQ plus Latter-day Saints and friends and allies. And I don't even know exactly how it's constructed right now, but that's the, the group that it is. He had a uh, 
at the UVU Humanities Symposium, he had a presentation called Unashamed Authenticity. And this is an hour long. I highly suggest everyone find it on YouTube. But there's this one paragraph where he talked about the, uh, he had earlier talked about the rainbow stained glass ceiling. It's this uh, barrier that keeps LGBT people down. It keeps us from progressing. It keeps us from having access to power and dignity and inclusion. It keeps us from um, from our authentically living our lives. And this is not in place for straight and cisgender members of the church, the, um, which those potentials and opportunities are limited, limitless. Mm-hmm. Almost literally, if you look at our theology, mm-hmm. we're we're limitless in. Uh, what we provide to straight, well, especially straight cisgender men, right? Mm-hmm. That's almost literally unlimited. Anyway, so here's what Nathan Kitchen, how he brought in the Joseph narrative and how the children of Jacob treated Joseph. And that is a great analogy for how individuals in the church treat LGBT folks. Here's what uh, Nathan Kitchen says. Quote, as long as the rainbow stained glass ceiling remains unshattered, you will continually be wishing your queer children goodbye. It doesn't matter how sincere your well wishes are, how tearful the goodbyes. Collectively, as a church, you are the children of Israel who have stripped us of our identifiable coat of many colors and separated us from our spiritual home, selling us for silver, and misrepresenting to our father why we have gone missing. It does not have to be like that. We do not have to wait until Egypt to embrace. Close quote. My, my, my. Yes. And I think this line here about misrepresenting to our father why we've gone missing. Yes, there are a lot of LGBT people who have, for safety reasons, had to, to distance in some way from the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or there are many who, um, who are no longer living. Mm-hmm. Right? And why have they gone missing? The yeah. straits will explain it as like them going astray or the covenant path being right. too hard for them or them wanting to live a life of right. sin. Exactly. And many of them have been excommunicated too. Oh, yeah. So there's many of these lies about why we've gone missing, but no one's going to look at the actual reason why we're missing. It's because Mm -hmm. what our family did to us. Mm -hmm. The people that we should trust to keep us safe have done to us what the brothers of Joseph did to Joseph. I mean, that like there's just a lot we could say. betrayed by his family, uh, coming out, trying to find out his own identity, um, being special, being different, having this vision, his personal revelation from God that his path should be a little bit different than everyone else's, he gets attacked. Mm -hmm. And what I want to just remind people of is where the story ends. Because for us who are queer, our shame becomes our glory. Like, look, it's the... It is the... um, Ironically, it is the very thing they did to Joseph that allows Joseph to be positioned to save the people who tried to kill him, his own family. Like this it is allows the his of the, dream to be realized. 
Yes. This allows, um, it, it, this is the message of the cross. The cross is foolishness. It is shameful. But this cross becomes our glory in the resurrection of Christ. And the same thing is ha- going to happen to Joseph. The same thing is going to happen to queer people. And I personally am spiritually descended from Joseph through Ephraim in my patriarchal blessing, which is not as special because pretty much everyone I know is descended from Ephraim. But I need to just pause and say we are um, appropriating some Jewish identities from living Jewish folks now who literally know which tribe they're descended from, uh, mostly Judah or Levi. But but yeah, this is not a, a, a hypothetical. I mean, there's people who... Um, who who trace that and then we are appropriating that and i just want to name that Mm. but i think we are called to be um spiritually descended from joseph like we as a people are are called to be peculiar we're called to be queer we're called to be edgy we're called to have dreams and visions we are called to have an ongoing restoration and we are not living into our birthright with this, um, and I'm rambling on way too much, but I'm. I should, <laughs> let me just stop talking about Joseph for now, and then we'll get into the. We didn't even get to Tamar yet. So, what are your what are your reactions to all this Joseph mess? I mean, I, I love what you said. I love the uh, you know the parallels you've drawn between our communities, um, namely Joseph's family and uh, us. And I think this goes really ha- well hand in hand back to uh, what we have noted back in Dinah's story about you know people using. A covenant to cause violence mm-hmm. and uh you know that this is something we have to name you've also named how uh, much we as uh, you know the straight members of the church will misrepresent where our queer siblings have gone or what has happened to them I- i've noticed this again um again and again anytime the issue has come out we are not good at being wholly honest about mm-hmm. what is happening in the church with regard to our queer siblings we will affirm things like the law of chastity and uh, the family proclamation day in and day out, but we will rarely talk about the effects of either of those things on our queer Mm -hmm. siblings. We don't talk about uh, what that actually means for us. And, you know, I I suggested at one point that members of the church should get very, should get comfortable with calling themselves, you know, homophobes, transphobes, and queerphobes, because that is that is what we are, you know, by uh, virtue of sustaining right. the family proclamation in the way that is traditionally weaponized, by virtue of sustaining the law of chastity in the way that says, you know, queer people are not entitled to what the rest of us are by virtue of orientation alone. You know, if you mm-hmm. ask a member of the church, the average member of the church, if they are comfortable with calling themselves a, a homophobe or a transphobe or, you know, whatever else, they will say no. That will make them uncomfortable. But that is what we are. And I think as soon as we are forced to confront our own queer phobia, I think that is when things may begin, or at least a conversation will at least begin about mm-hmm. how we uh, encounter our and how we relate to our queer siblings. But uh, I don't see that happening until we, as the, as the uh, brothers of Joseph were forced to do, forced to confront uh, the consequences mm-hmm. of our actions, forced to actually be truthful about what we have done. Like they thought they they conspired to kill Joseph, 
but they also conspired to, you know, as a lighter thing, to just throw him in a pit and abandon him, which was almost dooming him to certain death, but, you know, relieving their hands of the blood of murder for whatever. But it's but the end result is ultimately the same, and that's what we're doing. We are kind of, for lack of a better phrase, committing a soft murder to our queer siblings, a an act of uh, slow and uh, dissociated spiritual death, because we, we can say as long as we sustain the brethren, as long as we, like, don't directly kill them as long as we just throw them in a pit we're not guilty of anything but we are we are guilty of you know harming our queer siblings by throwing Mm -hmm. them into this pit like just because we've set the law like we we know what the end result is going to be we know that queer people can't have what the rest of us have uh by virtue of our orientation but this allows us to put a great distance between ourselves and that consequence and until we are able to uh, shorten that distance or at the very least see that distance for what it is, I, I don't think anything is uh, going to change substantially. Yeah. And this reminds me about this conversation about who the real spiritual descendants of Cain are. Now, what did Cain do? He killed his brother, just like the uh, brothers of Joseph tried to do. And not only that, but Cain decided to uh, minimize the horror through his words of saying, well, am I my brother's keeper? You know, am I my brother's keeper is Cain's version of all lives matter. Like, Mm. uh, yeah. So I think it's the oppressors who are actually the spiritual descendants of Cain, the ones who, uh, who, uh, you know, the first murderer. By the way, uh, in my, in my, Studies of Old English. I'm being. Uh, I'm beginning to look at Beowulf again, and uh, it turns out uh, Grendel, the the main monster in the first part of Beowulf, is uh, identified by the text as a descendant of Cain, the original murderer, and that's why Cain is is this uh, monstrous um, creature who uh, who who's bloodthirsty and just doesn't care about about others. Uh, how Beowulf represents the text, but anyway. Let's move on to Tamar. Yes, Tamar. So um, this is the next chapter. It's um, This is the chapter right after 37. It breaks briefly from the story of Joseph and goes to uh, the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, how the Come Follow Me manual uses uh, this particular story, it uses it as a counterweight to what will happen in the uh, next chapters uh, with uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's basically used as a how how not to respond to sexual temptation story. That's how Tamar's story is used. And I'm not going to say we can't use the story that way. That's not really what I want to discuss. Uh, but it's definitely not, in my opinion, the most significant part of uh, of this story. Uh, sex work was tolerated in biblical Israel, so long as the women doing it weren't of Israel. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really interested in talking about what Judah did wrong in terms of, you know, engaging in consensual sex. that That's not really what I want to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, what well, I do want to... Sorry, Let me ahead. just pause and say, part of the piece is on, on one angle, what he did wasn't wrong because he was obligated to provide a son to... Um, to Tamar, right? So this, yeah. this is the whole thing. Tamar's first two husbands were killed, mm-hmm. and the logic now is, 
Well, the remaining male relatives, the next male relative, typically the brother, um, is obligated to raise up seed for the original dead brother. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do that. That's why mm-hmm. Onan was killed. Uh, right. He didn't raise up seed for his dead brother. And then Judah um, didn't want his third son to be uh, to marry Tamar. And so, like, this family is not doing right by Tamar in a world where socially constructed women's value was dependent on their children and mm-hmm. not allowing her to have children. So ironically, uh, Tamar was able to, you know, manipulate Judah into doing what he was supposed to be doing anyway, providing mm-hmm. a uh, son to uh, to Tamar, right? Um, right? Social standing, the, the, the blessings of having a... Uh, uh, having children mm-hmm. anyway so back to what you were saying i mean i was just going to like give a summary of this story like basically where i wanted to end it was that son like judah's remaining son that he didn't want to associate with tamar for fear that you know he might die as well uh you know judah doesn't tell tamar that about his uh, youngest son growing up so, like, that is the initial injustice. He didn't provide mm-hmm. Tamar what she was entitled to. Uh, so she dresses, you know, like a sex worker and catches the attention of Judah. And he solicits sex from her, to which she agrees, in exchange for, you know, a pledge. That includes his signet, his cord, his staff, all of which basically amounts to the man's ID. And then when mm-hmm. Judah finds out that Tamar's pregnant and uh, reasons that she has become pregnant outside of their cultural bounds... He wants to burn her alive. But Tamar, you know, being the resourceful woman that she is, Mm -hmm. uh, presents basically his ID to him. And he's like, yo, um, the person who gave me this baby, this is his ID. And at this point, Judah realized he's been got, you know, what's he going to do? Burn her alive for doing what he should have done, for tricking him into doing what he should have done in the first place. And I find really interesting the word that is used in this verse where uh, Judah confesses, that uh, Tamar was more righteous than he. It's the same Hebrew word for justice that was used uh, to describe Noah before the flood came, that word sadaka. Um, mm-hmm. Very interesting that uh, this act that, uh, that Judah, or this act that Judah has to do is uh, perceived as a justice to Tamar. So really, this whole thing is about a story of justice to Tamar, a justice mm-hmm. she was entitled to, and uh, Judah tried to keep from her. Like, this is still the Judah who is, you know, a duplicitous individual um, as part of this mm-hmm. dysfunctional family, a descend- and, you know, rightly a duplicitous individual as a descendant of Jacob. But uh, I find it really interesting that uh, Tamar basically presents this man's ID to him in the same way that Judah presented the coat of many colors to Jacob. Um, It is an Mm -hmm. act of just poetic justice that uh, Judah did end up being tricked himself in a similar manner to which he tricked his own father. And in so doing, a justice was was done to Tamar. And um, this this raises a few questions, but uh, just where we had... um, you know, this previous story of Dinah, where, you know, God should have been depended on more uh, in order to, you know, make things right or to otherwise, you know, make sure that everybody's done okay. Tamar had to take matters into her own hands to make sure justice was done for her. And this is another thing. The the explicit voice of God is not seen um, 
you know, in the story of Joseph, probably until we get to, you know, the the 40s chapters, like the mid 40s around there. We got these dreams, but we don't hear the explicit voice of God uh, throughout, you know, this part of the text. Um but, you know, that's a question that was raised after reading this story is exactly how much, even though what uh, Tamar did, I feel was right. And she was more than in her right to do in order to get her own justice. You know, mm-hmm. to what extent are we supposed to engage in actions of our own, you know, free will and choice to bring to pass our own justice, particularly when we've seen these other stories of women in the text where they are taking matters into their own hands to make sure that certain outcomes are come to pass, like Sarah, like Rebecca, like Hagar. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, some of Mm -hmm. these acts that they do are, you know, maybe frowned upon. So, you know, one of the questions I'm asking is, um, first of all, are all those acts, you know, honored by God or honored in that particular position that they're put in? Because all of them were put in very difficult positions. And, uh, right. you know, just just a question that I haven't been able to answer is, um, you know, just is there a line to be drawn here? And I don't know if I'm even asking the right question, but it is one of the ones that was raised as I considered, you know, Tamar getting her justice through her own cunning, through her own, you know, her own efforts. But I'm also holding that in a conversation with the acts of people like uh, with women like Sarah, uh, Hagar and Rebecca. So uh, just just a question that I got. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. This whole thing is. um is quite complicated and um but it is it is worthy of noting like you brought out how we we know what Tamar wants we know what she says we know what she does she know what we know what her initiative and drive is unlike uh in the case of Dinah uh oh and and also speaking of Dinah it's my understanding that in um that in the south Dinah was a a, uh, um, a customary name uh, used to describe a, a, a random enslaved woman, right? Hmm. Um, that uh, they just kind of what is the word like? Kind of like the word Jim Crow is used just to, uh, but it's a it's a Dinah. Um, okay. Yeah, I'd, I'll have to see if I can find a source on that. Gotcha. But um, the, anyway, let's talk about. Um. Yeah, Tamar. I, I want to read this interesting thing that says. Uh, and I, of course, um, Perez here, the the one of the sons that that gets born to Judah and Tamar, is in going to be the ancestor of David, the ancestor of the Messiah. And here's what what we've got here in the Queer Bible Commentary. It says, So for the second and last time in Genesis and the Pentateuch, transgressive sexuality is crucial for inaugurating the line of the Messiah. On the first occasion when Lot's daughters rape their father, it is the female lineage that is initiated. On this second occasion, Tamar tricks her father-in-law to have sex with her and initiates the male lineage. On both occasions, the lineage depends on the agency and action of women. And so, um, and I want to resist, like, 
making anyone in this text all good or all bad and say, oh, look, there's women that did everything right and it, it's all perfect and they did nothing wrong. And or right. It, the text intentionally resists these binary simplistic categories and cuts to the heart of what I imagine it's like to be a woman, the complexity of navigating a world that's not designed for you. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, what all of this is speaking to. So I'm not completely exonerating or completely condemning. But but, yeah, I just want to name that. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and <laughs> I, right. I just find that beautiful that 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 this is then redeemed by God to uh, uh, that, that this lineage is is going to be uh, worthy of, of producing the Messiah. Um of the tribe of Judah. So yet again, we're getting in the text an opportunity for us to see, you know, even in these moments of sin or massive deviation from what is supposed to be the way things are, God is still able to bring their purposes to pass. Mm -hmm. Like we saw this mm -hmm. with Lot's daughters. We're seeing this with Joseph in real time. Like Joseph, despite being condemned to, you know, death and, you know, eventually sold into slavery, we're, we're still going to, you know, see him come out on top and still going to be able to mm -hmm. see. And, you know, in Tam Judah and Tamar's story, despite, you know, everything that went left in this situation, we have, you know, the Messiah coming through these, uh, you know, the initiation of women, but also these instances of transgression these it's a very transgressive right. lineage that christ comes through and uh i i think we've already you know named this on in previous episodes but i just want to make sure that we get an opportunity to point that out again because that's how often this has uh, come mm -hmm. up in the text these transgressive lineages this idea of christ coming through such a dysfunctional family and this uh, idea of god being able to basically make a way out of the worst ways available so uh, right just something that should be able to encourage all of us and something that we should you know generally keep in mind yeah let's talk a little bit about um joseph and potiphar's wife i mean i, I don't know if i have much to say other than what yeah, were people might... using this as like the counter me too in like your communities and your circles? You mean when I grew up? Well, just, you know, during the time of me too. Like were people oh. using Joseph and Potiphar's wife's story to, you know, basically clown the me too movement? Um I don't think so. I I I remember some pushback uh, a little bit about well believing uh, believing the survivor right well uh -huh. look at this case but i don't re i don't remember that being a predominant case uh, i heard it a bunch like i don't did. know yeah like i heard a lot of like christians using this story against me too and i just remember being disgusted by it like that's the only thing i have associated with this story anymore well the irony is what they're they're missing is the power dynamics which is quite different than um, or almost backwards than, than what we've got in the Me Too situation. Right. And um, let me just read this from the, uh, from the Queer Bible Commentary again. Uh, here's what it says, quote, uh, Her false charge of attempted rape against Joseph has served to cast doubt on the veracity of such claims in real life and supports the notion that the woman really wanted it. However, when read in terms of class, 
other factors come into play. Joseph can be seen as representing the plight of household servants or domestics who are subjected to harassment and abuse, sexual and otherwise, by their employers. Furthermore, in the ancient world, the master of the house had the right of sexual access to all his slaves, male and female. Only after Joseph has been promoted to be Potiphar's personal attendant does Joseph tell of Joseph's does Genesis tell of Joseph's beauty? Okay, so close quote. So what this is saying is, if you look at it in in and seeing the power dynamics at play, yes, Joseph is a male in this case, uh, but we also have to look at it in terms of class, where you can have all of these intersectionalities at play. Uh, where you have privilege on one angle, but then you also have a lack of privilege on some other angle, and which mm-hmm. one of those is at, at play is needs to be uh, named when you analyze these situations. Right, right. And so I think that's why we can empathize with and believe Joseph in this case, but that's a very different thing than the Me Too situation. Mm-hmm. There's also a reason why we need to uh, take seriously the discussions of intersectionality that are happening in our spheres. Like uh, we are mm-hmm. a complicated web of identities that all need to be acknowledged at, you know, at the same time in order to fully understand the situations in which we, which we find ourselves. And granted that work is time consuming and uh, a big reason nobody wants to, that people wouldn't want to mess with intersectionality is simply because it, you know, the work takes a lot longer. Um, than if we had to simply, you know, operate with or respond to the issues of one identity at a time. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this inter, this interplay of different identities, it all, it all matters. Um, and uh, we have to be able to acknowledge those when we, when we have these conversations. I think this may be a theme that comes up again in future readings, but I just right. wanted to put in a little plug for the, you know, embracing of intersectionality. Yeah, and that gets back to one of the the most important uh, things is who are the decision makers? Who is in the room? Who has the power when we're deciding things? Because when everyone talks about the proclamation on the family, no one stops to think, well, who wrote it? Who was in the room? Apparently, not even women were in the room when the proclamation was written. It was a bunch of straight white or presumably straight white men um, uh, that that wrote the family proclamation. So, of course, it's not going to cover sexuality or gender or gender roles the way that women would, the way that people of color, the way that queer people, the way that trans people would. If trans, queer, uh, trans folks, queer folks, women were in the room, had decision-making uh, power, if, if straight white men would share power, and have prophets, seers, and revelators that that uh, that could input, right? And that could bring the spirit to the whole room. We wouldn't have the proclamation uh, the way it is now, right? We wouldn't have right, all this right. mess if queer decision makers were in the room. People act like, oh, well, we've got the doctrine. Well, who who interpreted that doctrine? Where did who wrote it down? Who is mm-hmm. authoritative authoritatively speaking it? You cannot separate these things. And and I don't want to like 
bash straight white men, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not their fault that they're straight white and men. It's it's what you do with it. Um, same thing with with abled folks, right? Um, there's there's just a lot of things. And one thing that I learned at Andover Newton in one of my classes, uh, so one of the professors said, no one is 100% on every issue. That is, no one is 100% informed or 100% woke. We're all on a, on a journey. Like, no matter how right. social justice warrior you are, there's going to be gaps, right? I'm going to not know... Um, until I know. And that's why you need to have all these voices in the room. Women, people of color, disabled folks. Um, I, maybe I shouldn't start listing them because I might list them, leave them out. But mm-hmm. uh, queer and trans folks, right? People who are of dis- different nationalities, different ethnicities, people who dif- speak different languages. There's just so many ways that uh, economic justice, right? We need to have um, more poor people in leadership. That's who Jesus chose for the most part. Uh, um, right? There's just a lot of a lot of gaps that if you have a very narrow image of who should be called to be a leader in the church, you're going to have a very narrow output of what that doctrine gets looked like, what what it looks like, or what the manuals look like, or what the mm. whatever. Um, so yeah. I should I should probably stop talking. Have I have I talked enough today? <laughs> it's fine, my guy. Don't worry about it. Um, but we are, you know, over time a bit, and I don't know if there's anything else we got to name. I did remember that um, I forgot to name in uh, chapters thirty five and thirty six of Genesis. We have, you know, three pretty significant deaths of women, and also mm. a uh, significant moment of. Uh, I don't know, just Rachel just seems to be getting the short end of the stick. And I think feel like that needs to be named. We we get the naming of Deborah and Rebecca. And, you know, mm-hmm. Deborah has never been named up to this point, which I just think is a curious detail that is, you know, merits some uh, exploration. And I also wanted to uh, read a section from um, from uh, from Will from Will Gaffney's uh, Womanist Midrash. Uh, regarding Rachel, because I feel like um, mm. it's an important, it's an important kind of postscript to Rachel's story that we. Uh, well, I'm, it kind of outlines the treatment of Rachel in the whole thing, but also just how her story ends, and uh, you know, just gives us something to sit with. So let me just pull that up real quick, quick, and read it. Yeah, while you're pulling that up, I just want to say something about. We don't have a lot of the women-women relationship. And I'm not talking about same gender sexual or lesbian. I'm talking about women relating to women. We typically have women relating to men and seeing those interactions. But in rare cases, um, we do have, for example, the Rebecca and her nurse, which is a steady decades-long companion who is of the same gender supporting one another working with one another, toiling one one another, and, and literally um, nourishing uh, Rebecca mm-hmm. when she was a child. And she was sent along with uh, Rebecca back in, uh, back with Isaac, right? So she mm-hmm. left her whole, whole fa- father's household, but the nurse, w- her nurse was sent with her. And I think it's important that this same gender relationship was allowed to continue and I wish we knew more about it, right? Yeah. 
All right. So here it is. Uh, again, this is uh, Will Gaffney's um, Womanist Midrash. It reads, uh, I'm just going to summarize or read parts of these two paragraphs here. Rachel becomes an unnecessary character in Jacob's story. Rachel is absent from the story in Genesis 34 on the rape of Dinah, Jacob's daughter. She is not mentioned by name in chapter 35 when the household relocates to Bethel, but maybe referenced in Jacob's instruction for everyone to surrender their deities. In Genesis 35, six, or sorry, God does not change Rachel's name as God changed Sarai's name. Rachel is absent or silent when God changes Jacob's name to Yisrael. Yisrael. In Genesis 35, 16, Rachel dies in childbirth. The name Rachel chose for her second son, Ben-Oni, quote, son of my sorrow, is not honored by Jacob turned Israel. He renames the boy Ben-Yamin, Benjamin, right-hand son. She is buried and her grave marked in the text, unlike that of Rebekah. Genesis 48, 7, Israel recounts Rachel's death to Joseph. Jeremiah invokes Rachel in the scriptures with lament in 31, 15. And the people of Bethlehem invoke her along with Leah in a blessing. Lament and blessing characterizes the portrayal of Rachel in the scriptures. A pawn of her father in conflict with her sister, loved by a man she does not say she loves, ashamed of her infertility, and finally a mother granted fertility by God, dead before seeing her children grown and married, her deathbed wishes disregarded. So, um, I, I feel like... Like Rachel offers a lot to the story. She offers a lot of uh, tropes to the uh, womanist midrash. It says later in the text, um, but uh, she is not even in death. And despite her life being full of just so much um, like drama, like the dysfunction of her family ultimately leads to her not her her life not seeming to end the way that it ought to end. She dies in childbirth and her, you know, her last wishes aren't regarded properly. And I feel like that is something that needs to be named as we, uh, you know, conclude the part where we talk about Rachel. I don't know that we're really going to hear much for her in the uh, coming chapters. And uh, with that postscript that we just happened to neglect in this, this week's readings, I feel like it was important to, uh, you know, make sure we acknowledge her role in all the text that we have read to this point and also acknowledge the way that she, you know, leaves the story. That's all I want mm. to say. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, with that, we will go ahead and uh, wrap things up before we go ahead and do that. want to remind you guys that dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, uh, has new podcast partner that we want to put y'all onto called the fireside podcast with Blair Hodges featuring in-depth interviews about religion and culture, uh, with brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and a lot more. So if you are spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. You can learn more and listen to the Fireside podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts at Dialogue or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and then on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. You can also search for us on Facebook. Right. And uh, we also want to um, acknowledge some folks that have been making this work easier for us. Special thanks to uh, David Doyle, who's been editing our transcripts. I uh, also want to want to thank Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media. 
and uh, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, uh, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines are also including the uh, Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episodes from the same week, so you can uh, go ahead and have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me uh, study helps. Uh, you can find a link to the outlines in the show notes as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website. Uh, same goes for the uh, transcripts. Is there anything else that we got to put the people onto with regard to events or anything else happening this month? No, but maybe at one at some point I want to start a book club, like where we read a book every month and talk about it maybe online. I'm not sure. I'm just kind of thinking. I haven't thought that through yet. All but right. If there's interest, let me know. Sweet. Thank you for that plug. If there's nothing else, thank you all for joining us till we meet again next week. Okay, till we meet next week. Bye-bye.